Charlie Jane, what are you going to do with yourself now that the Willow TV series is over and Disney is taking it off streaming? I am seriously in mourning. Like, I mean, it's bad enough that they didn't pick it up for a second season because after finally watching season one with you, I'm like, I need more. I need Same. to see where this is going to go. I need to see them fight the worm. I need to know that Graydon is going to be okay. Graydon is such a lovely character. And like they left, I don't want to get into too deep into spoilers, but they left Graydon in a really scary place. Also on a personal note, a TV show that I worked really hard on, Why the Last Man, was removed it or has been removed probably by the time you hear this from FX on Hulu at the same time. And it just, it feels weird to have something that you put like year and a half, two years of your life into that you worked, put a lot of thought and energy and, and blood and sweat and tears and love into. And it just, it vanishes for the internet. It's a, it's just, it feels like a betrayal of what we thought streaming was going to be about. I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it's really true. Uh, it makes me angry. And here is my plan. Okay, I'm setting up a pro-union democratic alternate world, which you can reach through a portal whose coordinates I will I will pass on to you later. Uh, and this is a world where all shows will be available for streaming. I love the it. The creators will be paid a fair wage for their work and streaming residuals. So that's where we're all headed in our new portal fantasy. I hope this portal is just like something that you can dial into through the internet and just like watch TV in the alternate universe. I mean... Maybe it also includes TV shows that were canceled in this universe, but we can watch like more seasons of them in the other universe. Like exactly. season two of Julie and the Phantoms is just waiting for us on the other <gasps> yes! side of the portal. That I'm is never right. getting over that. I am never getting over that show being canceled. No, we're we're Kenny Ortega stands for life and especially for that show. So oh my God. on that note, I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. You're listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. <laughs> This week, we are sadly not going to go to Tyr Aslene, where Willow takes place, but we are going to talk about places like Tyr Aslene, the imaginary and real places where stories take place. And this is because I personally think that setting often really gets downplayed in the writing process. So we're going to talk about why it's important and how places and stories can behave like characters and sometimes even form the backbone of a narrative. And later on in the episode, we're going to be joined by Jessica Johns, who's the author of Bad Cree, which is an incredible new novel, which deals with a very specific place in Treaty 8 territory in northern Alberta, Canada. So we'll be talking with her about what it means to evoke a real place through world building. Also, on our mini episode next week, we're going to be talking about anthropomorphization, which is something that my cat is very familiar with. He's always like, stop anthropomorphizing me. Actually, he likes it. I think he likes being anthropomorphized. But anyway, so anthropomorphization... Does he? I don't know. I mean, I project onto him that he likes being anthropomorphized. We're going to talk about that. Okay. And so anthropomorphization is a very fancy way of describing that what happens when we project a human ideas and sort of human feelings and identities onto non-human life forms like my cat and even inanimate objects. It can be a good thing to do in a story, but also it can be kind of a bad thing. And, you know, my cat's excited because we're going to get right into it. And by the way... Did you know that this podcast is entirely independent and funded by you, our listeners, through Patreon? That's right. If you become a patron, you're making this podcast happen. Plus, you get audio extras with every episode. You get access to our Discord channel where we hang out all the time. And all the time. Everything about how to anthropomorphize cats as well as cool books to read. Think about it. All of that could be yours for just a few bucks a month. 
And anything you give goes right back into making our opinions even more correct. So find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. All right, let's get into it. So, Annalie, what does it mean to build up a sense of place in a story? I think that places are narratives. They're not just the, you know, backdrop. They're not just the thing that you paint that goes behind the characters that are walking around in front of it. And really the easiest way to think about this is to consider how important maps can be for a story. And, you know, this is a real trope in fantasy writing. You often get a fantasy novel that has a map in the beginning. Sometimes the map is really important. uh, Sometimes it isn't. But usually it tells you something about where our characters are going to go, not just physically, but also as a kind of uh, character arc. One of the examples I think of a lot is the map in the beginning of Werner Vinge's novel, Fire Upon the Deep. And it's very different from a fantasy map. It's actually quite simple. It almost looks like maybe Werner drew it on a napkin or something. And it's a picture of our galaxy. And the ga- the galactic disk is facing us, so it's kind of a, just a line. And then we're looking at all of the different regions around the galaxy where characters have set up uh, space stations and various habitats. And in his world, there are different regions of the um, areas above the galactic plane that allow technology to work faster and faster. And so if you're down in the galactic disk, like, It's the slow zone. Everything just kind of sucks. It's basically you just have like Google and the internet. And then like (laughs) once you get above the slow zone and into um, an area that's called the beyond, suddenly you have things like smart matter. You have the ability to have like, you know, general AI, all kinds of um, manufacturing becomes possible. And immediately when you look at that, you first of all, what you realize is this is a novel where the galaxy is going to be a character. And indeed, he makes good on that. Like, we see all kinds of great ways that characters from across the galaxy are communicating or not communicating. And so I think that that's uh, one way that a place becomes a character is through kind of evoking different spaces in a region and showing that the different spaces allow us to do different things. Um, And then, of course, there's just classic fantasy maps like you get in gaming, like the Sword Coast in Dungeons & Dragons. Um, That's where the new D&D movie takes place, but that's also where most of us are playing our games right now because that's the main setting. And so I've been all up and down the Sword Coast. I have, like, a great sense of, like, what the Sword Coast is like, you know, where you can find ice giants on the Sword Coast, like, where you can get a good cup of coffee, and again, it's it gives us a sense of um, possibility, where we can go, uh, what kinds of stories we can tell. Yeah, as opposed to the sword coaster, which is just the thing you put down to keep your sword from scratching your tabletop. That's a real tiny sword. <laughs> or you, really it's a really big coaster. It's a big, fr- it's actually it's a like a really long, coaster. it's a log coaster. Plus, you know, it just... Wow. So, 
So scabbards are right out. We're just right into coasters. That's good. That's I good. mean, no, it's in polite society, Annalie. In polite society, okay. you use sword coasters. Um, All right. Yeah. And so, I mean, in our episode about epic fantasy, we talked a lot about maps and like, you know, the moment yeah. you pick up a book with a map in it, you know that you're going to be getting to know the terrain and the features of the atmosphere. Super, sorry. You know you're going to be getting to know the terrain and the features of the landscape super well, and that it's going to matter in the story, at least usually. It's actually, it annoys me a lot when I pick up a book and there's a map in the front, and then I get to the end of the book and I'm like, I didn't need that map. That they didn't I know, actually, why is that map there? <laughs> the map kind of prom made a promise that the book didn't keep. But usually when there's a map, you kind of know what you're going to get. And like, you get, book, you get books that go even further. Like recently, The Cartographers by Peng Shepard is a book that's about maps, where like maps are kind of a character in the story and the mm -hmm. relationship between the map and the actual place is like kind of the whole story hinges on that in a really interesting way also sometimes you read a fantasy novel or you, you know any kind of genre novel where you get super elaborate detailed descriptions of a place uh like the one i often think about is uh, perdido street station by china mieville uh for example and you know China Mieville really invests a lot of time in making sure that you know the ins and outs of New Corobozon, however you're supposed to pronounce that. Um, and, yeah. you know, there are definitely times when the, like you kind of said, the character arc is mirrored by the progression across the, the, the landscape and the topography reveals what the characters are going through. And like, this is especially true when there's a big journey where we go someplace and then kind of come back again, like in The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, or, you know, when you're going on a quest, like the classic example is Lord of the Rings. The map kind of tells us, you know, where the characters are going and how they get there, but also kind of what they're going through on the journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because in Lord of the Rings especially, which I think really set the tone for a lot of recent stories about quests, you know, they'll have, like, a really horrific experience in some place that's, like, spiky or full of danger or, like, really cold or full of spider webs. And then uh, Tolkien will make sure to give them a, a soft, relaxing, idyllic place, usually someplace run by elves, you know, <laughs> and they'll kind of go and they'll have a rejuvenating time and they'll have food and they'll get to take a bath. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, punctuated equilibrium or something where they're like, you know, they get to have this this moment of calm um, before they face a new scary place. So there, there's like an alternating between a soft, restful place and a, a scary, spiny place. Also, I think in quest narratives, one of the really big tropes is turning a place into an aspiration. Mm -hmm. And there's so many stories where the plot of the story is we're going to the planet or we're going to the territory or we're going to the promised land or we're going to the, the land beyond the portal. And it comes up a lot, I think, probably in the West because we do have a lot of stories about um promised places. And it's interesting because, you know, the classic story of Ulysses, which comes from, you know, Greek storytelling and mythology, is about a promised land which is from the past. It's about Ulysses is trying to get home. That's the whole thing he's trying to do on his quest. He's like, you know, I keep having to run into all these sirens and there's like the Cyclops and all this other crap. And I'm literally just doing it because I want to get home to my farm and to my wife and just hang out and drink wine and eat yummy bread or whatever they're going to do with their farm. And the other type of aspirational play place comes from the 
Old Testament in the Bible where the Jews are wandering around in the desert in Exodus. Um, if you ma manage to make it to the second chapter of the Old Testament, you know that they're wandering around and literally that's what they're doing is they're looking for a place that they, the promised land that exists in the future and it's always in the future. And indeed, even they do kind of eventually find it, spoilers for a really old book, but still in um, in a lot of Jewish prayers, we still talk about how there's a promised land in the future. And so it's, um, you know, these two dueling promised lands or destinations um, that, that often, you know, in stories get kind of flipped around. Um, but we see those tropes coming up again and again. And one of my favorite um, table flips of these stories is where you have a story about characters who are questing for a place and they get there and it totally sucks. Mm -hmm. um, Kim Stanley Robinson has a great novel called Aurora, which is about a generation ship that is heading toward a planet that they're hoping humans will be able to populate. And they get there and it's just, it's been this insane journey that has cost them pretty much everything. It's a, It's been like, I don't know, 10 or 12 generations of people so they're really far away from home and they get to the planet. It's like, uh-oh, the planet is full of prion diseases. Now we have to go back home. Womp womp. <laughs> and womp womp. And um, it's it's really, I, I love, there's a lot of stories that do that. You know, for example, in The Magicians, where they're trying to get to Fillory, which is kind of a, an alternate world promised land. And they get there and they're like, actually, in the show... Um, there's like cocaine in the air or heroin in the air. And so the reason why everyone thinks it's the promised land is because they're all high while they're there. So that's another great twist that you get. Man, that show was weird. I love how weird that show got. Um, yeah, and you know, there's the Brazilian science fiction show, uh, 3%, which you can watch on Netflix. I highly recommend it the first season or two. And it's all about like this kind of competition where the best of the best, and it's like basically undermining the idea of meritocracy from the beginning, but like the so-called best of the best get to go to this special place where like everything is wonderful and you have all this amazing technology and like it's like this post-scarcity post place but only for like the elite quote unquote everybody else kind of lives in slums and of course you do get there and it turns out to not be that great but it turns out it turns out to be complicated because in some ways it's everything it, that you were promised it's just it's still people people are still people there's still terrible politics it's still kind of oppressive in its own way um you know and i think in a speculative fiction story it's interesting to think about on the one hand Places that are basically mundane, but they are perturbed or interrupted by the fantastical, like the fantastical intrudes on a world and becomes like, stands out and becomes a feature of the world versus like places that are inherently fantastical themselves, where like the fantastical is kind of embedded in the world. It's like the difference between, I don't know, urban fantasy, where a mundane city contains a fantastical element that's often hidden or sequestered and secondary world fantasy, where the whole world is like suffused with the fantastical and there are geographical features like the skeleton of a dead god or dragon skulls lying around. Like off the top of my head, you know, on the one hand, you've got, even though I knew the end, by C.L. Polk, which takes place in Chicago. And it's recognizably Chicago, but there's like angels and demons and things running around and it gets kind of, and there's like a whole secret world that most people don't know about. And then on the other hand, you've got the Owl House where the whole time they're, you know, they're living on the skeleton of this dead Titan that turns out to actually be really important. And it's just like, oh yeah, there's the head. There's the like, they were, we're on the skeleton. It's super weird. 
Yeah, it's funny because um, that image of the island that's inside the rib cage of a giant skeleton, oh that's God. something that we see in Perdido Street Station by China Mieville, right. which you mentioned earlier. There's a yeah. district in the city that looks like that. And I always wondered if Owl House, um, if the designers had been thinking of that or, I mean, you know, it's, it's might be just convergent evolution, but it's still, it's an incredible image. And it really makes sense that if you had gigantic skeletons like that, you would totally build a city inside. I also think that place can provide an atmosphere that changes the way we read the story. So you have a narrative that um, because of where it's set, suddenly you know exactly what kind of narrative it is. And one story where this is really striking is um, Malka Older's new book, which is called The Mimicking of Known Successes. Such and a great book. It's it's a fantastic book, and it really does have an amazing sp- sense of place um, because Jupiter is being occupied by people who are living in its upper atmosphere. And the way they get around is they build these train tracks that orbit the entire planet. So the planet has like a whole bunch of almost like bracelets all around it. And they build their habitats off of these train tracks and train stations. And what Malka does in that book, because it it really, it isn't a book about how awesome Jupiter is and all this stuff. It's a murder mystery. It's just a straight up, murder mystery with a really amazing Sherlock-esque detective um, and her girlfriend, who's also an incredible scientist and has a lot of insight into all of the work that they're doing. And so when the characters get together and they discuss the mystery, they're because they're on Jupiter, it's constantly foggy and windy and cold. Oh, my God. And they will go inside and cuddle up next to the heater and have tea And instantly it evokes that Sherlock Holmes vibe. And so even though you're on Jupiter, instead of your brain going to like, oh, I'm in a sci-fi novel about Jupiter and I expect certain kind of adventures to take place, instead you're like, oh, I'm in 19th century London and I expect a domestic kind of drama surrounding this murder. And indeed, that's what the story is about. But, But Malka Older really uses the setting to help orient uh, us in what type of story it is and does just an incredible job. And and in the process, I think, allows us to see Jupiter in a really different way, too, and gives us a, a sense of, like, actually, what would it really be like to live on Jupiter? It, it wouldn't be what you think. Um, so I love that about it. Yeah, I love a story where there's, like, a really strong atmosphere and where you know, the sense of place kind of roots you in in what the characters are dealing with. And, you know, it just feels like it's just dripping with personality. One of my favorite books of the last few years is The House of Rust by Khadija Abdallah Bajaber. Uh, and, you know, it takes place in, in Mombasa, a seaside city in Kenya where the author actually lives. And every page is suffused with lovely details of life in Mombasa. And they create like this really warm, rich atmosphere that kind of keeps you anchored as things get really surreal and strange. And there's like talking crows and talking cats and like, you know, a, a 
ship made out of bones and everything. It gets, and like, I feel like that is a thing. When an author is writing about a place where they actually live, it creates a strong sense that this story really happened because the details feel so like impossible to deny. And, you know, I found personally that when I write stories set in San Francisco and mind all the intimate stuff that I know about this city, it kind of helps me in a way to when I turn around and write fictional cities because, you know, I think about the lived in feeling that I'm able to get when I write about San Francisco and I'm like, how can I get that in a fictional place? And like, I don't know, do you think it helps when someone's writing about a real place that they know? Do you think that that makes the city more of a character in the story? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a novel um, called Future of Another Timeline, which is set in the city where I grew up in Irvine. And it's set roughly around the time that I grew up, which is important because, of course, places change over time. And that's part of the story that the place tells you um, is about its own history. And so for me, it was really important in Future of Another Timeline to create a mood that was really rooted in these specific places that I remembered, some of which are totally gone now. And it kind of spread out into other parts of the novel. I mean, it's a time travel novel, and the characters are going to all different crazy places, including they're going, you know, to ancient Lebanon and, you know, other um, locations that are perhaps less familiar to readers than maybe um, suburban California would be. And every time I took characters to a location, I would ask people who were experts in it about what that place was, like, what what they would see in that place. Like, not just like, oh, there's mountains, but like, are there nightclubs? Like, um, you know, like, for example, I, was, I have a character who's in North Carolina, and actually, I asked you because yeah. you had lived in North Carolina. And I and knew I was all like, the gay bars. The... I know. I was like, tell me the name of a gay bar. And you were like, oh, well, there was this place called Flex. And so I have the characters go to Flex. And I it's so funny because I got emails from people who were like, what? You knew about Flex? And like, of course, I was like, yes, I know all. <laughs> Man, that place was um, a hole. Yeah. And it is a hole in the in the novel, too. Although it was funny because when the story is set, Flex hadn't opened yet. And so the guy who was really excited that I'd mentioned Flex was like, ooh, so in an alternate timeline, Flex opened earlier, right? And I was like, yeah. That's (laughs) my bad. It totally, totally did. No, but that's actually fine because it was an alternate. It's an alternate history. So Flex, you know, just had a longer lifespan. Like, but for me, like, I actually did, even for the places I was writing about in Irvine, I did do, like, a lot of looking at old maps, looking at pictures of it. I talked to some friends of mine who had been to the same places and been to the same record stores that I describe, and I was like, do you remember what the record store looked like? How big was it? Like, I really wanted it to feel, I I felt like that place was so important to making me who I am and is so important to making these characters who they are that I wanted it to just be, like, I literally wanted, like, the pizza place to have the right name, Lamppost Pizza. It had to be that. Um, it had to be Knollwood Burgers. Those were places that we hung out. And there's, like, a there is something, like, almost like an invocation spell when you, like, use the real names of places and the real names of places that maybe are gone, like, that just helps put you in that space. But I also think that, you know, 
places can be characters that have their own opinions about things. So it's not always just about, like for me, recreating Irvine um, really is about showing how these people are interacting with it. But Irvine itself, I didn't feel was like a character in that story. Whereas other stories, like, for example, um, Boots Riley's movie, Sorry to Bother You, which is set in Oakland, Oakland feels like a character. And the main character in that movie, Cassius Green, who goes from being a telemarketer to being this kind of corporate shitball who is participating in some really shady programs to indenture people and eventually do some other even more invasive things to workers. He feels like an embodiment of Oakland, Cassius Green, because he's someone who's gone from being like a scrappy guy who hangs out with artists, hangs out with union organizers, and then he goes corporate and he turns against his own community. And that is the story of Oakland. Like Oakland has for a long time been a hotbed of Uh, radical political movements. It's the birthplace of the Black Panther movement. And it's really not the the comic book Black Panther movement, the actual Black Panther movement that inspired the comic book character. And at the same time, Oakland is transforming really rapidly. It's being gentrified. A ton of tech companies are coming in there, a ton of other corporations. And so it's like this divided city. And it really is like Cassius Green feels like He embodies Oakland. And I'm super excited about Boots Riley's new TV show, which is coming out very soon, called I'm a Virgo, which is about a Black teenager who grows to be like 12 feet tall. And his parents are hiding him in the house because they're like, what the hell is going to happen to a giant Black man? You know, we've got to protect this kid. But eventually he gets out. And that's the story of, of the show. But again, it feels like that's a story about Oakland. It's about like what happens when... Black men have power and become visible and become big. And so I love that. And I feel like that is very much about using a place to talk about social change over time, to talk about communities over time, but then also have characters that kind of personify that place. Yeah, and you can definitely get an effect where a character, you know, not only kind of stands in for the place or has this, like, symbolic or close relationship with the place where the but where the character actually becomes kind of a genius loci or the embodied spirit of a place and mm-hmm. you know um i think about nk jemison's recent uh, duology about new york city which starts with the city we became yes. which is a really profound example of this it's got these like characters who represent different boroughs of uh new york who have to kind of join together to save their home from this like lovecraftian force and jemison's deep knowledge of new york really brings this story to life. And, you know, you when you get very literal about a place having a mind of its own, then you can get to there being, like, local gods. But also, you can have hauntings, which are another way to bring a place to life. Yes. I think that hauntings are tremendously important to um, stories about place. And, you know, one way to think about this is that we explore places through hauntings by personifying a place in a in ghosts. And I I think about, as a funny example, uh, the show, the British show Ghosts, which also has an American version, which I didn't watch, but I did watch the British version. And it's just, it's a cute comedy about a couple who are trying to 
fix up a very, very old estate and turn it into um, like a, a, an event space or like a, a B&B type place. And one of the people in the couple turns out, I think she gets hit on the head or something, and then she can see ghosts. So she can see that this house is inhabited by a group of ghosts who represent different historical periods in the house's history. So there's like a Neolithic guy who lived there long before um, you know, any kind of house was there. You know, there's a, a Renaissance person. There's somebody from like the 1990s who's like a, a Tory politician, somebody from the 70s. So there's a whole group of people who, and they all have a stake in what happens to the house. They're very concerned about what she's doing with it. Um, a little bit like Beetlejuice, uh, which also has these this couple who are very concerned about what's happening to their house after they die. And those are kind of funny examples, but I think there's also more serious examples like the movie Poltergeist, um, which I think is super interesting because it table flips the usual haunted house idea where, you know, typically it's an ancient house, a very old house that has all of these things that have happened in it. But in Poltergeist, it's a brand new house, a brand new suburban home that's literally been built like seconds before the the characters move in, but it is built on an Indian burial ground. This is a common trope um, that we're actually going to talk about a little bit more with Jessica Johns when she joins us. But what is being evoked there is the idea that the land itself has a stake in what happens to it. And they don't want these suburbs being built on... The land is like, no. (laughs) And indeed... Uh, spoilers for a really old movie, the house is eventually like sucked into a giant maw and leaving nothing behind. Love it. Yeah, I think that part of what's interesting about thinking about sets of places is that, you know, bodies are sites of trauma, like our bodies carry trauma with us. uh, And like you have like places where you, you can kind of feel the trauma that your body has been through. But Places also carry the scars of trauma, and you can look at a place and yes. see the traumas that have happened there and see the literal, often literal, scars on the landscape left behind by wars, atrocities, like, you know, natural disasters, you know, benign neglect, not so benign neglect. And I feel like it's always interesting to kind of look at a place and be able to see where, you know, crimes have kind of happened there. Yeah, it's so funny. One of my favorite places in a movie is the spaceship in Alien, Mm. where in the first film, where they arrive and you can see that there's been this horrific thing that's happened. There's this exploded skeleton of an alien. We don't know how old it is, you know, the crashed spaceship. And so that sets the tone for a movie that's basically a haunted house movie, but it's set in this ancient spaceship initially. And then, of course, the the quote-unquote ghost, the monster, follows them onto their more modern spaceship. But I also think that, you know, on a much, looking at this from a different perspective, I think that part of the trauma that you see in a place that you were suggesting is when the land is being used, it's when the land is being victimized, when we have like an extractive relationship with, with the land or like a transactional relationship with it. And this is a central concern in Dune. You know, Dune is a series named after a place that has been horrifically abused, the planet Arrakis, for resources. 
And the indigenous people of that planet have had to move underground in order to escape from the way that the surface of their planet is being mined repeatedly. Um, and of course, the local animals are also being harmed by this, the, the worms. And also we see this in the show The Mandalorian, which is has a bit of a Dune-like feel in some ways because it is about the planet Mandalore, what's going to happen to Mandalore. The original inhabitants, a lot of them are living underground because the planet has been mined for Beskar. Beskar, which is like, I guess, the best. That's why it's called Beskar. I don't know. It's like a metal that's like the best. So um, that was my super great joke about Beskar, Charlie Jean. <laughs> Charlie is making the greatest face in the Zoom right now. <laughs> it's just like, she's like, can I eat my lips? <laughs> Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it's like in my work in the terraformers, my recent novel, I was really interested in thinking about people who have a more extractive relationship with the planet. They're just trying to take its resources or turn it into a tourist resort. And then there's other people who are like, no, I want to have a mutual relationship with this place. I want to keep the ecosystems in balance. I want to live in balance with the ecosystems. I want to sustain this planet over time. And to me, that's like a central conflict in our relationship with the land a lot of the time. Yeah, so if we think about place as narrative and place as character, this really helps us understand how our characters and our stories are in relationship with places and that what they do with the places they go to and that with the places they journey through, it's kind of like writing relationships between two characters. And coming up after the break, we're going to talk about this with Jessica Johns, who has written a lot about a place that she knows very well. Jessica Johns is an award-winning author and a member of the Sucker Creek First Nation in Alberta. She doesn't just publish fiction and nonfiction. She's also creating visual art, performing her work live, and is on the editorial board of Guts, an anti-colonial feminist magazine. Her first novel is called Bad Cree, and it came out earlier this year. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, your novel, Bad Cree, is one of my favorite things that I read this year, and it features a very creepy monster who is tied to a specific place in northern Alberta. And your main character, Mackenzie, is living in Vancouver, starts having visions tied to this monster in this place that gets so intense that she knows she has to go home and deal with it. And often in a story full of fantastical elements like this, readers expect that we'll be like journeying to an imaginary place, going through a portal or something like that. But that's the opposite of what happens to McKinsey. And it feels like the closer she gets to the supernatural creature haunting her family, the more real and vivid the place has become. So I wonder if you could talk about what it's like to world build a real place in a story that has so many fantastical elements. Yeah, so that's such a great question. Thank you for engaging so thoughtfully with Bad Cree as well. Um, this is my debut novel, so, you know, it's just very special to me. I'm hoping I continue to publish works in my life. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, I don't think, yeah, I think this is a very special experience that I, I won't forget. And one of the reasons is because... 
I prominently feature my home territory, my home territory, Treaty 8, High Prairie, which is a real place where my family uh, is from and a place that I know very, very well, uh, plays a very significant character in, in this novel. And I think that for me, it just... um it was really difficult for me because I initially did want to, I wanted to set it in Treaty 8 for a number of reasons. Uh, the first being that I was talking about the, the creature that um, is also a part of this novel is one that is built and created from greed. And that tied in really well with, you know, Alberta industry. In Alberta, the oil field industry is very prominent. And so I've grown up thinking a lot about the complicated ways that it is to, you know, live on land and in your own territory where resource extraction is so prominent and the complicated relationship communities and people have with this industry. And so for me, so I was going to originally, um, though it was going to be in Treaty 8, it was going to be in sort of a fictional town that I made up. Mm -hmm. And um, that, it was really difficult for me to do that. I felt very, um, yeah, it just, it felt very difficult to breathe life into that. And I don't know if it's because, you know, my own, you know, craft as a writer is still being developed or if just the place that I was always thinking about from the jump was, you know, always High Prairie. But I also had a conversation with um, Eden Robinson, who is the author of the Trickster series and very prominently displays also, though it is a fictional, fictional works, real places such as Vancouver and Indigenous communities on the coast of BC. Mm -hmm. And in my conversation with Eden, I remember her saying, like, you know, writing about a place I know was just is part of the magic. Like, it's part of what made this and made, you know, writing these works so, so genuine to me. And that really stuck with me. And I just thought in the end, yeah, I'm going to base this on a place that I know really well and world build off of, in, you know, though based in reality, world build off of those realities into ultra realities, into this sort of like fantastical other world that's happening in these woods around the area. Yeah. So we talked a lot in the first half of this episode about kind of writing about real places and how that can be a springboard for writing about fantastical places. So I'm really excited to hear you say that. And, you know, I'm interested in like, you, you talk about developing your craft in terms of creating a sense of place. What do you think makes an, uh, an effective evocation of a place? Like, is it particular descriptions of things? Is it food? Is it smells? Is it particular kinds of people that you meet or like actual place names that you sprinkle in there? How do you, how do you go about doing that? Well, for me, it was really important that I imbued a sense of agency into the land itself. And a part of the reason for that was because truly I, I conceptualized 
this land as living. I understand this land as living. I understand more than just a character in a novel. This this land is is something in real life is a place that I am in relationship with and to all the time. So in thinking about how I wanted to represent that in the novel, I really was thinking about, you know, how do I how how does a place have agency when often in literature um place is thought of as just setting and for me it's not it's very much you know how do i how do i talk about without being you know didactic or uh how do i talk about reciprocity because a big part of this is that um mackenzie the main character has been away from her her home for a number of years and when she returns back, it's very changed. It's very different, as is she. And so I was thinking to myself, like, what what does it mean to when you're separated from like a loved one for a period of time who maybe you have a complicated relationship with and you see them again and physically they've changed, um, you know, emotionally they've changed. How do you reconnect with somebody in that sort of situation? So I really thought about that and um, in many parts of, of the novel, the land sort of does its own thing, you know, when without giving too much away, you know, her her and her sister and her cousin go into these woods that sort of change around them. The water does things very much on its own accord. So for me, I think going back to your question, it really invokes all of those things, you know, sight, sound, and and really like feeling, you know, how how do you feel about a place when you're there on not just a surface level, but like emotionally, how are you connecting or reconnecting or failing to connect to a place? And I thought about that. Yeah, I thought about that a lot as I was writing. Yeah, that's so great. I love all the ways that the prairies kind of come to life in this novel. And one of the things I was really struck by was the way some of the places are given Cree names, some are given English names, sometimes they're given both names, and it kind of, you know, goes back and forth, depending on who's speaking. Um, You talk about, uh, you use political names, like saying Treaty 8 land. And I was wondering, were you thinking about this? Were you like picking and choosing like when you would use which kinds of names? Did it depend on who was talking or was it kind of like geographical code switching or? Uh, Yeah, I thought about this a little bit. I think for a number of things like, you know, the name of the lake in Cree, um, it was important to me that it retained its original name, refer, you know, referring to the geographical area or like the political area of treaty eight before uh the imposition the imposition for canada imposed itself on this land um sovereign indigenous nations made treaties with the crown and that precedes canada those are um agreements that we went into as as sovereign nations and so that is what i recognize mm-hmm. and also that is what this yeah this character whose point of view we're hearing from the whole time that's who's whose um political view we're seeing and 
I was also thinking, because this is somebody who she wasn't raised with a lot of cultural knowledge. So what she knows, she's upfront about saying, like, when she used to go for walks in this in this wood, in the woods with her cookum, and her cookum taught her the names, the Cree names for plants. That's why she knows those names, and that's why she names them. There's many plants she doesn't know the Cree names for because, you know, she doesn't, yeah, she doesn't have all the knowledge for that. So it's kind of showing the reality of somebody who has some knowledge and doesn't have all of it. Or also there are some uh, English words that because they're very new, don't have Crete words for them yet. And so, yeah, just thinking about who she is as a character and where she's at, what she would know as um, a Cree person, what she might not being uh, having been disconnected in that her disconnected from some traditional teachings. So it was really just thinking about, yeah, what, what in, in her reality, what would she know and what wouldn't she? Because for example, the, um, you know, stories of the Weedigo, she doesn't know all of that. She, that stuff she has to figure out sort of in the fictive present of, of the novel as you're going through it. So yeah, it was, uh, it was in a lot of the, a lot of that was very intentional and it was very intentional to the character and, you know, what her knowledge base would be. Yeah. So speaking of, of the, the monster in this story, we, earlier in the episode, we were talking about hauntings and how a place being haunted is a one way of getting to understand the place and the history of the place. And I, I was wondering, like, why did you pick this particular monster and the form that it takes in the story? I, um, first of all, I think there are some things that I want to say indigenous people, but I don't want to um, pan-indigenize. So I'm just going to say Cree people because those are the people I know best. We do some things really, really well. And that is we can tell a really, really good joke and we can tell a really, really good scary story. And so like growing up, uh, I have, yeah, I just have been um, around a lot of really great spooky storytellers. And so I'm just kind of, you know, I was just really um, interested and a, a bit obsessed with we to go stories and um, you know, it, there's a lot of contemporary writers who have written about Weedigo stories. Richard Van Camp is one of them. So I, I knew I wanted to write a, uh, you know, horror-esque novel. And so that felt very fitting. And also because I was writing about a landscape that is in reality very entrenched in industry, I was thinking a lot about I was thinking a lot about trauma. I was thinking a lot about hurt and violence. And the the interesting thing about this novel is that though the Weedigo is the bad thing, the bad creature, this bad force in the story, it's actually not the main evil. Like it's a product of industry. It's a, it's a it's like um an after effect of th- this other bigger violence. And because of that, it's sort of like they're they're fighting like um like a minion versus like the big bad thing because that big bad <laughs> yeah. thing still exists after 
the the novel ends like they didn't you know come together to take down the oil field industry they came together to take down something that's a product of that that was terrorizing them so it's sort of um that's sort of sad and futile you know but also you know it's it i was thinking about how oftentimes with violence we don't we're we're left what are we left to deal with after violence happens like violence isn't a singular event it's many and the repercussions of violence is massive and thinking about the repercussions of this particular violence of land extraction of resource extraction on communities they're huge and this is one particular thing that this family has to deal with that i mean the bigger industry wouldn't even know about they wouldn't even think about it happening and it was a major event for these characters you know so that was just that was the interesting to me to think about yeah it's it's funny because so the indigenous community is being haunted by a monster that's created by basically settler extractive practices. I mean, it's, it is associated with, I think, settler capitalism and all of the fun things that that brings. And it felt to me like a table flip on a really common trope that we see in horror stories like white settler horror stories where there's some kind of haunting because of an Indian burial ground. And this is like, we talked about poltergeist earlier in the episode as a perfect example of this. And I was wondering, were you engaging with this trope at all? Were you thinking about it? And um, yeah, I wonder if you could just talk about that. Thank you so much for catching it because yes, very intensely (laughs) engaging with that trope. There was a number of, like the horror, um, historically, uh, there's, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of, I guess, uh, sort of problematic cliches within horror. Or, yeah, there are a lot of tropes as well that I think about quite often. And I was raised on, I love horror. I was raised on horror. And, you know, I I love Stephen King, uh, you know, and he has a lot of, he loves an Indian burial ground. He just loves yeah. the <laughs> Indian artifacts. He's obsessed with them. And, yeah. Um, and it was really, you know, it it felt very, yeah, it felt very subversive to think about what haunting means for Indigenous people. Because the haunting, first of all, is an everyday haunting. We're dealing with uh, colonialism, which is an ongoing violence as well, all the time. And so what, what does that look like when our traditional grounds, when our traditional territory and our traditional land is haunted? because of settler colonialism and other things as well like um you know uh Mackenzie sort of uh almost falls into sort of a tropey tendencies at the very start of the novel these things these dreams are happening to her she's quite fearful and the first thing she does is call her aunt to be like what's going on with me and it sort of sets up this expectation of this like Wizened, wizened, you know, stoic indigenous person who's go- going to impart some wisdom of like, oh, it's this and you must blah, blah, blah. And instead the aunt is just like, I don't know. That's fucked up. That's why uh, <laughs> I yeah. have no idea what's going on. Would love to help you. Can't give you an answer. And um, 
and you know other tropes like the crows the crows are often used in in um in horror particularly for uh for you know evocative of you know a lot of creepy eerie things and thinking about what crows mean for Cree people and you know how we would interpret them how Mackenzie interprets them at first and how that changes because of what she grows to know about them Mm -hmm. um so yeah there were a couple of things that I thought you know how how is horror how are these elements traditionally used and and how would they be used in 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 a context that me and people like me would understand yeah so uh, I guess final question uh are there any other stories that have like a really great sense of place that you really love that you think do sense of place really well yeah so I I mentioned just before Eden Robinson's uh Eden Robinson's the trickster series and also Monkey Beach uh she does I think honestly her work is sort of you know was just really um influential for me in how I went about writing about place and um, that work has just really stuck with me throughout my um, writing career to date. And most recently, I read a novel called um, The Islands of Belonging by Jasmine Seeley, where um, her all ge- there's generational stories that take place in Barbados and how um, she captures place also in such a complex and layered and tender way is so fantastic um so that was uh those those two are top of mind for me those both sound great um we will put those in the show notes thank you so much for joining us jessica johns um people can find bad cree anywhere where good books are sold um and bad books i mean whatever you know (laughs) books (laughs) books from all alignments um, is there any place that folks can find your work online? Yes. I can't remember where. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots of, lots of um, earlier uh, poetry can certain be, certainly be found online. Um, some of my shorter pieces of fiction. If you just like Google my name and, you know, fiction or poetry, it will come up. I'm, I can't remember exactly where right now. I'm sorry. Totally fine. So Google Jessica Johns and you will entreats await. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, you can find us on Mastodon at Our Opinions at Wandering Shop. You can find us on the other places at OOAC Pod. And of course, you can always find us on Patreon, where we would really appreciate your support. Patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. And you can find this podcast on all places where fine podcasts and not so fine podcasts are purveyed. Please leave us a review. Um, We really appreciate it. It really helps people find us. Plus, we just like to hear what you thought. Yeah. And yeah. And thank you so much to our wonderful producer, Veronica Simonetti. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the awesome new music. And talk to you later. If you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Bye. Bye. Bye.